coming up on this episode. I think I have really enjoyed learning from pastoralists for over a, a decade now. I, you know, going to school in Kenya and learning from books in Kenya, you don't, ha- you don't really get a very positive view of pastoralists. I've learned a lot from just being present and seeing the logic in their livelihood. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Public Health Musings. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline Kingori at Ohio University. Today's episode will focus on geography, climate change, environmental conservation, and its link to public health. My guest is Dr. Elizabeth Edna Wangoi, the Director of Global Studies and Associate Professor of Geography at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. I have known Dr. Wangoi for a while now as a friend and colleague. She's originally from Kenya and her research examines the gender dimensions of rural development and rural livelihood change, environmental conservation and local knowledge, climate change adaptation, and clean and safe water. She has worked among pastoralists in East Africa for most of her career. I'm always happy to showcase topics that would otherwise not be considered public health related with the intention of showing the interdisciplinary and multifaceted nature of public health. Let us welcome Dr. Edna Wangoi to the show. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Edna Wangoi. We're so glad to have you on the show today. And to just get us started, um, you are a geographer by profession, and your expertise is largely centered on gender and rural livelihoods and landscape change in East Africa. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got here? Uh, what, what does your journey look like um, to this point? Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's actually a pretty um, early journey for me. Uh, My interest in environment, particularly environmental conservation, was um, started on school trips that I took to the Nairobi National Park. Um, And in the park, you saw wildlife in their native habitat. Um, And that sparked an interest in conservation that that was very early in my my childhood. Um, But in addition to that, there's a second area that sparked that interest as well. And these were the school holiday stays that I had with my grandmother um, in rural Kenya. That is really where I observed gender relations, uh, how responsibilities in farming and livestock care, um, all of that is really strictly gendered, especially in my community. And this was in addition to the gendered nature of caregiving that already I knew existed. And um, this interest, both in environmental conservation and in rural gender dimensions of rural livelihoods, um, really are very reflected in the courses that I choose. I chose to take as an undergraduate student, um, but also in my postgraduate studies. But it wasn't really until in my PhD program that I found a way to marry the two, to really bring the two together. Um, in the context of gender and environmental studies. And since my PhD, that's basically what I have been, um, I have been studying. And it was, it was great to be able to, to marry these two interests, these two passions um, into what has now become my career. 
Wow, that's a, an amazing story, um, you know, coming all the way from Kenya um, through Europe, right? And then uh, finally ending up in, uh, in the US. So to follow up on two of your research areas, when you're looking at um, livelihoods and how those influence nutrition, security of grandparent caregivers of aid orphans, that's something you did um, a while back. We know that nutrition is a major issue in many parts of Africa. Tell us a little bit about this lead research and how you link nutrition, caregiving, and with the orphans living with HIV. This was actually a very interesting research uh, for me. And in many ways, it was a departure from my regular research with um, pastoralists. Um, this was an opportunity that I had to partner with um, another research project that was on grandparent caregivers that was going on here at Ohio University. Um, and this is a research project that was headed by Dr. Gillian Ice at the College of Medicine, uh, who was looking at nutritional status from a public health perspective. And so my our partnering together was actually very, um, very, it was a very good partnership because then I was able to take the results from her research and look at the livelihood choices that um, different elderly um, caregivers, particularly older women above the age of um, 65, were making uh, the choices that they were making or the choices that they were able to make in their livelihood practices and how this was impacting their nutritional security. And it was actually very interesting uh, finding, and that was that was also counterintuitive for us because what we found was that the caregivers of AIDS orphans were more nutritionally secure than the non-caregivers, um, and it was interesting to investigate why that is the case. And there were many reasons. Uh, one of the reasons was that caregivers had grandchildren who were going to school and who were then enrolled in a school feeding program for AIDS orphans. The non-caregivers didn't have that. And sometimes what the children would do was to bring back some of the food and share it with their grandparents. But a second area that was equally interesting was that the children, the caregiving was going both ways. The grandparents were taking care of them of their grandchildren, but the grandchildren were also taking care of the grandparents. And one way that they were giving this care was in farming. They were younger and stronger, particularly the older grandchildren were able to provide labor that was then used to grow food that the grandparents would have struggled to grow had they been living on their own, particularly if they were. Um, if they were sick. So this, they, it was interesting to see this really close link between caregiving of um, orphans living with HIV AIDS and nutrition um, among the elderly. And I want to follow up a little bit on that. You talked about labor, you talked about gender. So you also had another study that looked at gender relations or your research focuses on gender relations and gender labor availability within the household. So what do we need to know about uh, gender in relation to distribution of labor um, and how that links with um, health outcomes? That's a very interesting um, question. It's, there are some um, obvious linkages that we see. For example, we know women are more involved in caregiving. Um, cooking is one of the activities that you mostly find women doing, particularly in rural Africa and caring for the sick. 
And when you think about cooking, it opens a whole Pandora box of health outcomes for women. And of course, for the people who eventually have to eat that food. But the main one um, that is a concern is exposure to indoor smoke. Because when you think about the cooking space that the women are usually working in, um, it doesn't have very good ventilation. And because of climate change um, and the impact on uh, vegetation, they don't always, they're not always able to find the kind of wood that does not produce a lot of smoke. They are kind of down to the point where they use the wood they get. And sometimes it's not their first choice in terms of wood, in terms of tree species. So they end up in enclosed places with uh, firewood that is producing a lot of smoke and that does have an impact on their health. Um, this is being addressed um, by, there are a lot of efforts that I see on the ground um, about switching from firewood to other alternatives such as biogas that are that have less that produce less indoor smoke and actually because it requires also less firewood is very very widely embraced um, by the women caring for the sick as we know can have an emotional toll on the caregivers it can also depending on the kind of sickness that the the person that is being cared for has it, had, it can expose the caregiver to infection. Um, and it can also make women vulnerable in other ways. For example, they are less able to, they are less available to do other things when their labor or their time is being spent on caregiving. Um, and those other things can include farming and growing food. Um, and again, another link to food security. So it's a really large and complex and I think interesting process when you think about um, my work in gender relations and um, gender responsibility and it's and how it can link directly to health outcomes so this is really interesting as a geographer and you're looking at um this health issues um you know someone would say oh but you do geography um uh, but then <laughs> you're also focusing and measuring health outcomes but before we get to if you see any link with your work in public health you talked about climate change and firewood, and that's something I, I want to follow up on. First of all, how does the firewood determine or predict what's going on in the climate? And secondly, we know there's been a discussion of climate change in the past few years. What do we need to know um, about the current status of that? That's that's a really good question. Um, a lot of my work um, in, with rural communities has been with pastoralists. And uh, some of what we have done was actually to document firewood journeys. Um, this is uh, just working with women and finding where they collect firewood, what type of firewood. And as we go on these firewood journeys, we talk about what, what was it like 10 years ago and how is it different now? And it's interesting to see that from their perspective, what climate change means is that they are struggling to find firewood. They understand enough about different kinds of species of trees um, and they're using firewood that they can tell how the climate is changing from how available or not available um, particular species of trees are. So just from changing vegetation, natural vegetation, they can tell you a lot about 
um, climate change. Um, and in terms of um, <clears throat> the current status of um, climate change, um, the, there, is, there is a lot, um, there are a lot of interesting things there as well. There's obviously what we know from speaking with pastoralists and farmers, but there's also what we know from uh, the science. And I think the advantage or the good thing, the way to move forward with that would be to think about how these different forms of knowledge can complement each other. Uh, what can we learn from looking at what local people know um, and looking at how they perform their livelihoods and how can that be um, taken together with what we know from the social sciences, the physical sciences, from the PhD type of scientists, or they don't have to have PhDs, but the, that alternative form, um, that, that um, other kind of science in addition to the, or form of knowledge in addition to traditional forms of um, knowledge. Wow. So for someone who is still on the fence about climate change, how would you define climate change? What is it? Is it today it's cold, tomorrow it's hot? You know, is it as basic as that or there is so much more that we need to understand? So there is a lot more than we need uh, that we need to understand. And for me, that's that question is always has always been really interesting because I did not encounter climate skeptics until I came to the US for my PhD. I had studied in Kenya um, for my undergraduate, studied in Brazil, uh, studied in Belgium, and it wasn't until I was in the PhD program that I was made aware of this issue. The reason it was particularly fascinating was that I had just come from Kenya and I had already started working uh, with rural communities um, and I hadn't met any person in the rural areas, any single pastoralist or single farmer who was doubting the existence of climate change. It didn't matter how educated they were. So it was quite interesting for me to sit in my PhD program um, and hear about these discussions um, going on. I think one of the things that's um, good to know and not lose sight of is that as humans, we are very closely coupled with climate systems. This is something that is mostly emphasized in Africa and with good reasons too, because in Africa, there's a pretty high dependence on rain-fed farming. But when you think about it, this is actually true everywhere that people eat food, which is practically everywhere that there are uh, people. When you think about food production, you are going to have to encounter um, challenges and opportunities connected to climate change. It's also interesting to think about the degree of expected climate change. It is large. Uh, we are expecting changes in rainfall and in temperature, but equally important is increasing variability, um, particularly in an African context where people, again, are more dependent, have livelihoods that are more dependent on the physical environment. Um, these kinds of variations uh, will, for instance, impact people's ability to figure out what to do. Do we plant now or do we plant 10 days? You plant too early um, or rather the, the planting season, the time to plant is shifting when you go from one year to the next. And if you plant too early, you can lose your crop. Uh, but people are doing things differently 
to make sure that um, they are spreading their risks. They can plant their seeds at different times. Um, so they are, they are figuring out how to live with this extremely variable climate. I think one of the reasons why there is skepticism is this confusion between weather and climate. Um, I know I talk to people who say, well, the climate can't be changing because it was really cold last week. Um, but really, when you think about climate change, you have to think about a totality of weather events. Weather is something that is changing. These are changes from morning to afternoon to evening. But when you're thinking about climate, you're thinking about a longer term trend. Um, what was it like 10 years ago? What was it like 20 and 30 years ago, 100 years ago? And those are the trends um, that show this variability, that show this um, extreme climate or expected climate change um, in rainfall, in temperature, and many other consequences um, as a result of those um, changes. Wow, that's really amazing information. And when we think about policy implications of the decisions that people have to make um, with their livelihoods. And, you know, in Africa, uh, we have a lot of farmers. You talked about pastoralists. What are some of these policy implications that we need to think about? Um, and also, if we need projects and we need people to be given some sort of stimulus, what are the things that we need to think about? There are a lot of um, implications, policy implications. Um, and I've seen them play out differently. Um, what I've seen is with among pastoralists, working among pastoralists who tend to be, and in the two countries where I've worked with pastoralists, which is Kenya and Tanzania, they tend to be the minority in both class, in both countries. They, they don't always, um, they don't always have the government's ear. And what that means is that some of the planning uh, for climate change that we are seeing targeting some of the uh, livelihoods, we are not seeing as much, at least coming from the central government, that is targeting pastoralists. That's not to say that there isn't anything going on. Um, the pastoralists are not sitting there and waiting for the government to come do things for them. There is also a lot of what we refer to as spontaneous or autonomous adaptation um, going on. Um, I think implications, uh, policy implications, there are many, um, perhaps too many to list here, but uh, given the focus on public health, um, I think it, it would be perhaps thinking about policy implications of climate change on public health might be a way to um, make this large topic um, a little bit more bite-sized. Um, and they, you know, in, in, we have rising temperatures, we have changes in precipitation, we have extreme weather events, we have rising sea levels. And some of the outcomes of this we see in the news every summer, the heat waves, extreme heat. Um, and that has an impact on public health. It, it does send people, vulnerable people to the hospital um, every summer. We, have, we get questions of air quality, and this is both outdoor air quality as well as indoor air quality. Think when you have intense storms, when you have flooding, when you, you might have um, conditions for mold to grow, for example, in, indoors you will have um, impact on the 
quantity of water anywhere, quantity of water, quality of water as well, um, as a direct result of flooding and droughts, because those are both extreme events that are pretty important on the African continent. And connected to the floods, depending on the the inputs that have been put in the soil, the agricultural inputs, for example, or any other presence of contaminants in the soil, uh, you put, you throw up an extreme weather event like a flood in that place and you then are getting a spreading of the contaminants, again, with implications for public health. So the least is, is really huge. And I think um, all levels of government um, in, in my own country, Kenya, all levels of government, national, uh, county level, these are things that they need to be paying attention to um, and just trying to address moving forward so that the impact is lessened on the, on the people. Very true. And looking more at um, the pastoralists, because you've worked with them um, for a long time, uh, you focus on the biophysical and socioeconomic processes that have forced pastoralists um, who are dependent on migration into more sedentary livelihoods. Like I can't even imagine, uh, you know, because we know um, just by the nature of, um, you know, the communities and how they move from one place to another. So th this basically means that their health outcomes are ne negatively impacted by impacted by their sedentary lifestyle and um, exacerbated by various factors, some of which you've talked about. So how did you get started with working with pastoralists and how do you see their sedentary lifestyle um, impacting the health outcomes, including their socioeconomic status? So I started working um, among pastoralists um, really somewhere in between my master's program and my PhD program, which was in the late 90s. Um, and this is because I had a job with the International Livestock Research Institute. The key operative word there is livestock. And that sent me to look at uh, livestock diseases among pastoralists. Um, and at the time, we were looking at the tsetse fly. And when you think about the fly, that the tsetse fly, you are going to get into discussions of land use. And uh, you get into discussions of land use and before you know it, you're talking about livelihoods. And that's given, again, my interest from a young age of um, gender roles and relations uh, and uh, environmental conservation. The livelihoods aspect is what really stayed with me. Um, but it was, again, that 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 journey. I also happened to my master's degree was in um, something called eremology which roughly translates into desert science. Um, but really, the way I explain it, it's, it's like dry land farming. Um, and so my, I already had training uh, by the time I was working at the Livestock Research Institute. I already had training on dry lands. Um, and so that also was instrumental in making me really want to go and study dry lands and the things that happen in dry lands, most of them being pastoralists. Now the impact on sedentarization, and we can talk, there's a lot that we can say about how sedentarization has happened because this is something, this is a process that goes back to the colonial period um, and the policies that were, um, that were put in place 
to address what was at the time seen as the problem of pastoralism. Um, and then this were continued by the newly independent governments. And now we are at a place where it's, it's just a lot harder to undo, even though we recognize that mobility is actually very beneficial to the people and to pastoralists. There's um, a study that I'm aware of, um, and this is not a study I was involved in, but um, it's a study that was done in Northern Kenya that looked at health outcomes um, of pastoralists, some who were settled uh, and some who were not. There were actually more than two groups. And they did find that malnutrition levels are higher among the settled pastoralists. Respiratory diseases are also higher. Diarrhea is also higher, stunting in children. And all of these impacts are actually gendered. Um, obviously, with children, boys or girls are going to be more negatively impacted, but women as well were more negatively impacted. Um, so there is, uh, and, and part of the reason for that was the pastoralists that were settled had less livestock. And so their diet was different. Um, the, in this particular community, camel milk uh, and availability of camel milk is connected to people's health outcomes. And that was access to camel milk was one of the reasons that um, you are seeing some of these changes in addition to other, other things um, as well. But there is um, interesting dynamic there. And I, I would actually like to see a lot more of these kinds of research linking health and um, or public health with, um, with sedentarization of pastoralism, um, especially something that could be more recent. Yes, we can find a project. We can work together on that. Uh, I, um, this is really exciting information, uh, learning more about those linkages. Uh, but I'm also wondering, you know, do you see links with COVID-19 and the kind of work that you do? You know, you have climate change, um, you have this um, socioeconomic processes, environmental conservation. Do you see any link with COVID-19 right now? And do you know how that has impacted the communities you're working with? Absolutely. I mean, what's what's um, interesting though with COVID-19 is, is how it has kept me in Athens, Ohio and not uh, facilitated my travel or rather inhibit, has inhibited my travel. Um, and, you know, so most of what I know is not from my own research. It's from just trying to look at the news, just trying to, to remain informed about what's happening where I do my research. And I know very early on in the process, there was concern because the markets very early on in the COVID um, outbreak, there was, concerned because the markets, you know, where the livestock is sold, where the farmers bring their food, the and the farmers are also livestock um, keepers. They, the pastoralists are the same ones who are farmers, where they bring their food. Some of these places were closed. They were out. Of, and, and that, I mean, all I can do is look and wonder what, what does this mean for so many things how what is it if they are not able to go sell their livestock i know they need to rely on selling that livestock 
to be able to pay school fees for children in January, which is the beginning of the academic year in Kenya. Um, and what about the, the women who obviously nobody's growing all the crops that they can grow um, that they need. And so they need to go to the market for that exchange to happen. How is this playing out? And I'm sure being just knowing pastoralists and how resilient they are, I'm sure that they have found ways around the market closures, but it would be, um, it would be, I am looking forward to being back there and actually talking to them about the different ways in which they, they modified their activities to still be able to get the income from livestock and to still be able to exchange food um, even without that central marketplace to go to. Rites of passage as well. I mean, there are many rites of passages um, and some in particular are even um, seen by UNESCO as a part of heritage that needs to be protected. Um, obviously, those are would also be challenging to because a lot of people are gathering in one place. So it would also be challenging to, um, to implement or to carry out under COVID um, situation. So I know they've been affected. I don't know to what extent or how. I feel knowing these communities that they have found ways to, um, to deal with, with this to some extent. And I'm looking forward to when I can travel um, to Kenya and, and, do, and actually do ask them those questions. Indeed, um, COVID-19 definitely has affected um, a lot of livelihoods and for communities like pastoralists, I can only imagine how they coped in the last one year um, and also them trying to wrap their heads around this disease that probably they don't completely comprehend um, the essence of it. Um, so with all the work that you've done, you know, when you look at environmental conservation, climate change, you look at gendered uh, relations and, um, you know, the work you've done with um, orphans and, you know, the older generation. Do you see a link uh, between what you do and public health? How so? That is a really interesting question. And I have to say that when you invited me to, put, to be a guest on your podcast, and I know your podcast is on public wealth. I, I kind of took a step back and wondered, really, what do I do that has anything to do with public health? And I'm really glad that you invited me because without this invitation, I don't think I would have paused to really uh, think about that question. But once I did start to think about it, my list got actually pretty long. I was, um, I was, I was surprised by it. And one thing that I realize, um, and probably something that has been at the back of my mind is that when you think about livelihoods and public health, they are very tightly connected. Um, that was clear when I was doing my research on the nutritional status of grandparents, but I haven't really thought about it beyond that study. But when you think about it, healthy people are better able to perform their livelihood activities and livelihood activities take a lot of energy, which depends on nutrition. They take a lot of uh, time. Um, and so there's a really tight connection there. Um, more recently, my, uh, you know, I've kind of broadened my work beyond pastoralists. And more recently, I've been doing work in the Apatana. And this work is centered around questions of water, 
water quality, water quantity. But I don't usually stop to think, well, what are the public health implications of, of this? But when you think about it, it is right in there. I mean, you, you do need healthy, safe drinking water. And that's actually what my project is, is looking at in an indirect sort of way. I'm looking at how farming can be done in such a way that water quality and water quantity in the upper Tana is not negatively impacted. We already know what farmers need to be doing, building terraces, agroforestry, water harvesting techniques, and those kinds of things. But what I'm looking at is what are the barriers? What's stopping farmers from taking on those um, measures that would really mean that the quality of water in the upper Tana is, is good. And this is actually extremely important because a lot of the water that's being used in the city of Nairobi, which is the capital city of, of, of Kenya, is coming from the upper Tana. So in that sense, it's, there's a pretty big link there between the health of the farmers, but also the health of the dwellers of Nairobi who have to rely on this source, among other sources as well, but this is really the main source. Um, to get safe drinking, safe drinking water. That's awesome. Yes, when I invited you, I knew that there is a link <laughs> with the work that you do um, and public health, given all these different uh, topics that you are addressing. And so I wanted people to get a different um, perspective and just the interdisciplinary nature and the multidimensionality of public health and how it's not a field in and of itself, but we really rely on partnerships from different people to again improve the health of the population. And we need geographers, we need environmental conservatives, you know, people who do the work that you do. And, and we definitely appreciate that. So as we wind down, tell me one or two memorable moments in your work and, um, you know, with everything that you've done this time, this whole time that you've been engaged in this kind of research. So, um, there have been many memorable moments, but if I was to, if I was to summarize it, since we are winding up, um, I think I have really enjoyed learning from pastoralists for over a, a decade now. I, you know, going to school in Kenya and learning from books in Kenya, you don't, you don't really get a very positive view of pastoralists, um, especially at the time when I was going to school. Um, but so I've, I've learned a lot from just being present and, and seeing the logic um, in their livelihood, but also seeing the change since I've been there, working there now for over a decade. It's, it's oh, two decades, you know, about two decades. So seeing the change, seeing what they had started off with as temporary measures to get through an extreme drought become more permanent and a part of their uh, livelihood, seeing that adaptation, seeing their resilience has been extremely um, interesting for me and in many, many ways, really rewarding. Sometimes people ask me if you're looking at, if you're working in the area of climate change, it's all bad news. And I normally say, well, where I work, it's actually all good news because there's so many positive things that are going on. I mean, pastoralists are now better able to survive a drought um, of a particular magnitude 
better than they would have survived in the past, a drought of the same magnitude because of all the things that they have put in place to make their livelihoods resilient. In the highlands, my work in the highlands too, um, you know, and, and over my career, I've worked with a wonderful group of people. Um, in the highlands, um, there's a particular group of people that I'm working with at the county level. And what's different about this group is how receptive they are to research and to my work in particular. Um, and so it's been just a wonderful, it's been a joy to see my results being taken up um, and being implemented, influencing the decisions that they are making, uh, influencing what they do the following week based on the results that I gave them this week. It's been really just wonderful to see that. Um, it's something that I had hoped would happen to my research um, and getting to the point where that, where I've actually seen that happening um, has been extremely rewarding. And that's, I think that's been the most memorable um, part of my career. It's pretty exciting to see um, how much work you've done um, back in Kenya and in Tanzania and giving back and being able to make a difference in those communities, but also influence policy. And this is, are the kinds of things we want to see as researchers, particularly uh, researchers from the diaspora. So I want to thank you so much for coming onto the show today and uh, for taking me on on the invitation, even when you're, you are like, I don't know where, how I fit in this public health realm. Now you can see um, the possibility and it's exciting to, to have learned so much about your work and to continue to wish you the best. But we do need to talk about that project uh, and see what we can do together uh, with our different, um, you know, different related fields, if you will, given that we are from the same country. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that would be an excellent um, idea. We definitely need to keep these conversations going, um, even when we are not in the podcast and see how we can work together. I see just a lot of opportunities um, to work together. And it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much to the listeners and for coming on to the show and taking a listen to learn more from um, Dr. Edna Wangoi, who is a geographer uh, by profession and research, but also does a lot more work that is related to population and public health. Thank you and have a good day. Mm -hmm.